Hello, welcome to Conversations in Calvinism. Um, we are live once again. This is cool. Um, so, uh, Turden Fan has set up our uh, StreamYard account, and we've been enjoying using it, and it's a uh, it's a pretty good system. So, so, today we are here to not do a full review, but there was a a debate on the program, The Gospel Truth, that that's hosted by Marlon. It was between Dr. Kirk McGregor and Dr. Guillaume uh, Billon. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Kirk McGregor is a Molinist, and Dr. Guillaume Bion is a uh, Calvinist slash theological determinist, and they are both um, well known and respected in this field. So it was an interesting discussion, to say the least. They both take a philosophical approach, but they also bring in scripture, and so it was a it was a good discussion. I enjoyed it. That's for sure. Um, so we're not here to review the whole discussion. In fact, we wanted to uh, focus on one particular point, but I think it was the heart of the discussion. And specifically, the uh, bulk of the argument and strategy that Guillaume had as the theological determinist side is, hey, look, there is this uh, problem of evil. Both Calvinists and Molinists have to answer the problem of evil, which is absolutely right and especially answering atheist objections and that sort of thing. But his approach was that because basically um, Calvinism and Molinism are so close to each other that all the objections lodged against Calvinism are going to blow up in the face of Molinists, as, as he put it uh, early on in the debate. And specifically, he used Greg Walty's bullet bill analogy, and I'll let him explain that uh, in his own words, but I think it's a pretty cool analogy. And, and I've certainly read uh, Greg Walty's argument, and um, so I'd love to get into that. So th I think that's uh, that's where we could uh, start. But uh, Turnfan, do you want to say anything by way of introduction here before we dive into the meat of the matter and, and play a clip and then uh, just start chatting about it? Uh, just to say this is not a disclaimer or an endorsement of the rest of the debate, but you know the link is in the description already, I believe. But if not, the title is Dr. Kirk McGregor versus Dr. Guillaume Mignon. Calvinism versus Molinism, the problem of evil, episode 239 of the Gospel Truth. And we're only going to be covering a short, short segment of the two hour and or two hour plus video. So, uh, you know, please feel free to check it out. And, and if you have some in other points you'd like us to address, feel free to reach out and let us know. We are always interested in viewer feedback. Absolutely. All right. So let me bring in the video. Okay, can you see that? All right, looks good. Okay, so let's uh, let's play this one clip. So this will be a just about a three minute clip. I'll I'll just run it for the three minutes, and then we can respond to the uh, the whole thing. You know, our moral intuition about what makes somebody guilty of a murder, right, by firing a gun. Um, we look at the situation where he's firing a gun, um, even if the um, bullet is standard and we're just facing the normal laws of physics that person is not maintaining the laws of physics in place so that technically he's not guaranteeing he's not strongly actualizing the killing of the person because he's not in control of those laws of nature which could be altered and therefore prevents the bullet from killing the target but then without having to bend the laws of nature you could envision the scenario where he fires a bullet that has indeterministic free will right so the, the bullet bill goes and then has the freedom to refrain from killing the target, but in fact does not refrain 
we would still say that the person who fired the gun intuitively is morally responsible, especially if that person knew that the bullet would not refrain from killing the target. So we have somebody who's firing the gun with the intention of killing somebody with a bullet that could uh, deviate so it's not deterministic, but the killer is knowing what the bullet would do in those circumstances, and he knows that he would kill the target. And I think that those intuitions in place, we would say, well, that person is morally guilty, right? And so similarly, the God of Molinism finds himself putting us in circumstances in which, yes, we are indeterminist, uh, we are indeterministically doing what we do, but he knows what we would do. And it seems like by the same moral intuitions as the case of the bullet bill, we would be saying that the God of Molinism is morally blameworthy. Now, obviously, I don't say that the God of Molinism would be blameworthy for doing this. Why? Because I say that God has morally sufficient reasons and he's after the greater good. Uh, but simply the, the intuition of the action, right? The, the fact that there is determinism or indeterminism in the chain yeah. of action is not the relevant factor here. What we are saying, and this is where the Calvinist and the Molinist once again should be hanging, uh, like uh, hugging each other, like uh, uh, arms above shoulders, is to say, we both affirm that God has a greater good that he's trying to achieve. And the fact that he's bringing about this instance of evil for good reasons is what ex um, excuses him, right? So it's what um, makes him not blameworthy is that he has the right intentions and he's after a greater good. So the, the, the simple fact that he's determining or bringing about the person is not really the, where the debated um, moral difference should be, right? So what do you think of that case? And Okay, so I'll, I'll pause it there. And, and really that is the, uh, the main clip that I wanted to play there. So, um, oh, cool. So the argument is essentially that you know, on Molinism, God is presented with these middle knowledge options, and he he knows what would happen under this circumstance and that circumstance. And so just the fact that um, God has middle knowledge and uses his middle knowledge to arrange things the way he wants does not, so to speak, um, solve the problem of evil or get him off the hook. So the fact that there's middle knowledge, the fact that there's libertarian freedom, those two factors alone aren't solving the problem of evil. And the bullet bill analogy is supposed to get at that because if someone fires a regular gun and kills somebody, say that's a murder. But if somebody fires bullet bill, knowing what bullet bill will do, so bullet bill has freedom, um, he can uh, not hit the person, but the person knows, well, bullet bill isn't gonna swerve off, he's going to hit the, the target kill this person so um you know the the intuition is well still murder right and and so in that case you know middle, middle knowledge in the chain of uh events libertarian freedom in the chain of events is not um enough to get uh i guess the to to block the intuition of moral responsibility and in essence it's um i think from Guillaume side, he might see this as it's a bit of a trap, right? Because to solve Bullet Bill, um, what the Dr. McGregor does is says, well, God doesn't have these evil intentions when he's, you know, using his middle knowledge. He's not like a gangster or that sort of thing. And he has sufficiently good reasons as to why he's doing what he's doing. 
And Guillaume says, same here. Calvinists say the same thing. So the idea of the trap of bill, the bullet bill is to, to solve the bullet bill analogy, you're going to use techniques that a Cal, answers that a Calvinist would, would already be using anyways. And then everyone's um, side by side. So um, that's the, uh, the, the argument in a nutshell. Um, do you want to um, comment at this point or you want me to keep going? It's up to you. Oh. I would, I guess my initial comment is this is somewhat similar to an argument that I've made in the past, although it's more elegantly stated and with a cool accent that only uh, Dr. Bignon can, can do. But the so, whole act. Why you comment on it? So let me ask, so, because you would, you would probably know, is he considered a Huguenot if he's a French Calvinist? I don't know his relationship to the Huguenot churches. There are still, I think, some Huguenot churches in existence, so he he may or may not be connected with them. But right. I, I don't think I, I I have not heard that. But I don't I just don't know. I haven't asked him. Okay. And uh, a lot of the French Calvinists after, at Turretin's time, there was the School of Samur, which was Amiraldian. I, I don't, also don't know Dr. Bignon's position on limited atonement, which would you know, might might distinguish that. I would say though that there's a nice biblical precedent for his bullet bill analogy, and that is, and I was it started to accidentally started to share it into the stream, but I'll share it now deliberately, uh, which is, and it's a, it shows up a little bit small. I think I can zoom it in uh, here, but it's a, it's Jeremiah fifty one twenty, and. Here God says, you are my battle axe and weapons of war. For with you will I break in pieces the nations, and with you will I destroy kingdoms. And with you will I break in pieces the horse and his rider. And with thee will I break in, places, in pieces the chariot and his rider. And with thee also will I break in pieces man and woman. And with thee will I break in pieces old and young. And with thee will I break in pieces the young man and the maid. I will also break in pieces with thee, the shepherd and his flock, and with thee I will break in pieces the husbandman and his yoke of oxen, and with thee will I break in pieces captains and rulers, and I will render unto Babylon and to all the inhabitants of Chaldea all their evil that they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. So the idea of uh, equating, uh, I, I, I'll just take this off the screen for the moment, uh, but the, the idea of equating God's use of human agents for his purposes is analogized to God using a weapon, not, not a gun. And uh, the Chaldeans aren't bullet bill, obviously, but there's a, uh, that, that kind of metaphor has at least some biblical precedent. Uh, it, it, not the exact metaphor, obviously, but the, there's a, the similarity is that God does describe these people as his weapons. Yeah, so my my hesitancy is that uh, in in that case it's it's more of a an animate object. So the point of bullet bill is that bullet bill has libertarian freedom, and that God has middle knowledge of what bullet bill will do. So that's the um, uh, I guess the point that supposedly addresses Molinism specifically in the bullet bill analogy. So the axe doesn't. 
have a choice as to whether to be swung or not swung. Um, whereas Bullet Bill has a choice. He can swerve off, um, you know, from the game Mario, right? Bullet Bill just goes wherever he wants. And then, uh, <laughs> um, and then also the idea that God has middle knowledge, not so, you know, I guess God's knowledge of what an ax will do when it strikes with a certain amount of force on an, on an object with certain properties is part of his natural knowledge, right? It's, um, you know, that's just a, just an object's cause and effect, you know, it might as well be a stone uh, or that sort of thing. So, you know, we could look at that passage and see, well, okay, what is the point of that analogy that's in that passage? And, you know, I, I suspect you and I would disagree on it, but it would be, um, uh, a different analysis, I suppose, than Bullet Bill, where the point is supposedly that there's libertarian freedom in Bullet Bill and middle knowledge, and there's still this um, tracing of responsibility that we see that, you know, just because somebody fired off Bullet Bill, um, you know, the person is still responsible for murder. Um, does that Does that in and of itself make sense? I don't want to... Uh... I don't want to delay our discussion too much by getting focused on on the connection that I I would connect make here. What I'm saying is not certainly I'm agreeing that the exact metaphor is not the same and that axes as such don't have free will. But I would say in this I just want to clarify that in in the axe and the battle axe and weapons of war mentioned in Jeremiah 51:20 are referring to the Babylonians, and that they are then at verse 24 held responsible for the evil they do, which relates to this very destruction. So I, I think that the, I think that there's, I think we could probably get into an argument about whether, you know, how closely we can match these things up. But I think it's, it's not simply saying that there's some example in the Bible about using an axe in general. It's, it's about applying those acts to people who at least you know, uh, if we're going to have a libertarian presumption about human beings' actions, that they have some libertarian freedom. Oh, I see. So you really, uh, um, why don't you bring the text back up on the screen? I guess we can focus on uh, Jeremiah 51 instead of Bullet Bill then. Do you, you want to discuss it? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's important to you. So we can we can resolve it. Oh, if you want. I. I, I would be okay with just passing on from this and going to the bill of bill part if you want. If you want to focus no, on this, okay, too. No, this is fine. So the the language is that God is using. So let's see, who is the thou? Uh, thou art my battle axe. So is it Jacob? Uh, so here, uh, set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. And set up the watchman, prepare the ambitious, for the Lord hath both devised and done that which he spake against the inhabitants of Babylon. Uh, so is the axe Babylon or is the axe? I'm sorry, the axe Jacob. is the king of the Medes here. Uh, the king of the Medes, okay. He's raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes for his devices against Babylon. Okay, right. So the idea is that was certainly that God is in control and that he is in control of the outcome of this battle between the Medes and the Babylonians and that he's going to use the Medes to destroy 
the Babylonians. So I think that's the the main purpose of the analogy, the point of the analogy. And it's he's so certain of the result, it's as if he's an axe in his hands. Now you can you you gotta look at well what's the main point and not press into the details of well, you know, there's differences between a person and an axe. And I, I'm sure you don't deny that, right? Like, you, you know, a person has agency and that sort of thing. You, um, uh, you, you would, an axe doesn't make choices, for example, and you would minimally say that kings make choices. So um, the analogy isn't meant to be pressed to that level, but the point of God's providential control is there. Now, I think what's interesting, and, and this is a parallel point, is I think we would both look to a greater good as to what God has in mind. Because if God is um, uh, bringing about this battle and this destruction of the Babylonians, um, and presumably even on the Medes' part, there's, a sin, there's sinful actions involved in this battle, I don't know. Maybe there was, maybe there wasn't, but I would assume that there were. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's a just war. But um, so God is at least permitting sin and directing the sin in the way he wants it to go and controlling the outcome of the sin. So that is important. And I think we would both say, you know, that isn't some ultimate end that's absolutely willed by God in a vacuum. Right. No, he's doing that for a greater good. He's going to bring some redemptive purpose out of this. He's going to do something with it. It's going to lead ultimately to his glory. And, um, you know, maybe this you would maybe even you would say that, you know, the salvation of his elect and, and this sort of thing, I would think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, unless you'd say, no, this this is an end in itself. This is this is the goal is to get the Medes to perform sinful actions and uh, kill the Babylonians with it. Uh, is it uh, is it okay if I come back to just the two of us view, or you want to keep it up there? No, no, this is fine. Well, it's up to you. You choose. Okay. Sorry, just come back here. So just talking to each other. Uh, sure. So yeah, no, I mean, in general, I'm okay with with the explanation you provided. I definitely acknowledge there's a real difference between an axe and a human being, and they're not the same thing. It's just that. I, my only point was really that this idea of creating an analogy between a weapon and a human being is something right. that God has done at, in Jeremiah, that there is a, an, a similar analogy there. It, of course, God is not saying that we are bullet bills or that we're battle axes with a mind of our own, but that, that's not exactly what he's saying. It's, it's, it's not an exact, you know, rip rip off of jeremiah 51 it's just that there is this similar analogy there that's really that was the entire point of of my comment now as far as what was god's purpose there i do think that he was intending to punish israel for with the babylonians to punish israel for their transgressions and he had other things too I and mean, that wasn't the only thing it came up in my study a little bit of obadiah but the edomites participation with the Chaldeans in the destruction and looting of Jerusalem is brought out as one of the reasons for which Edom is then going to be destroyed by God through the instrumentality of other people uh, later on. So 
there's more than one purpose that God has to it. It's not as though God is only and uniquely focused on, hey, let's do some evil. So here are some people to do the evil for me as my acts. Yeah, so but okay. even punishment itself, though, wouldn't you say that punishment isn't an end in itself? It's not like that it would be glorifying. It, it wouldn't be a good thing if God, let's say, created Adam directly into hell, right? No, punishment seems to be of sin for the glory of God. Do you agree with that much? So, so the, the issue about whether God could create someone specifically for hell. Not, not create for someone for hell, but just to skip the whole timeline and just put Adam straight into hell without anything, without him ever sinning. And so, so I, in that case, I wouldn't view hell as a punishment for something. It would just be that he was created into a life of suffering, not as a punishment. We have to have some other. So uh, what? maybe I'm agreeing with you, but in the sense that in order for something to be a punishment, punishment implies guilt and guilt exactly. implies a sin or some right, other violation right. of law. So, yeah, so there, there, there is a connection there. And the justification for a punishment is right. a violation of law that's being justly condemned and, and therefore rewarded with the punishment. Right. But is there, so I, I agree with you on like the inbound side that there's, there's gotta be sin and guilt before the punishment, but on the outbound side, the person being punished, does that person, does that punishment glorify God in the sense of, I don't know, displaying his justice and maybe being an example for other people. And, you know, we could come up with different things, but is there, uh, this this aspect of a good that's brought out of the punishment it's not just punishment for punishment's sake yes I, I i do think that it shows god's justice when god punishes wickedness and right. i i think that treating the chaldeans as kind of the if you if you imagine the israelites in a cosmic court God is the judge. They're being judged for their sins. They rebelled against God. Now they're being judged. And now as a result of that judgment, they're going to receive a punishment from God. And then in this case, the Chaldeans are being viewed as, uh, or the Babylonians, and then ultimately the Medes come against the Babylonians. But the, the Babylonians are, or were, simply God's executioner. But... In, the, in that particular case, they didn't, they're not actually just, uh, in, like in a human court, an actual executioner is not just some random guy who shows up and starts shooting the, the people who have just been condemned. It's actually somebody who's like hired by the government. He has the government's authority and approval to do what he does. He does it motivated by that. Not He's not on a vendetta that just happens to, you know, catch up with them at the wrong time. So there's some important differences between the Babylonians and an actual normal executioner. Uh, but but God is kind is using these Babylonians in that way, and so from the standpoint of God, He has a justification for killing the Israelites. He has He has good reasons to do it. He's it's lawful, it's just, it shows God's justice, as you said. And if God were doing this directly, God it wouldn't be sinful for God to do this directly. Uh, yeah. So it's not an exact alignment because we're talking when the and we, uh, we can come back. I don't know if this is a nice way to segue back into the bullet bill discussion. In the bullet bill discussion, we have a situation where the 
the instigator of the situation is not the lawful executioner uh, with a firing squad to kill the uh, convicted criminal. We're talking about somebody now who is maybe out of hatred in their heart pulling the trigger, trying to kill an innocent person, not execute God's just judgment. So that's where this, that's where we kind of have a divergence of the stories. Yeah. So, but it, I, and I, well, I'll get to, yes, so I agree with you, but I just want to make sure that that foundation is laid that, but in both cases, we want to say that the killing of the victim of bullet bill or whatever. So the, when, when there's a death, when somebody is sent to hell or something like that, there is a greater good that's brought out of it. Um, you know, in terms of God's glory. So I, I think we should both agree as, um, both Calvinist and Molinist, that God does bring greater good out of evil and suffering and sin and, and that sort of thing. And also, I think we should agree that God's intentions are not just absolutely to create suffering, create pain, and that sort of thing. No, he does that relative to a good end that he's going to bring out of it. So, um, so the analogy, I, I'm curious if you will agree with this analogy or not, but I'll, I'll lay it out. So um, I think it is pretty popular one, but so it's usually called the robot vacuum or something like that. So the analogy is, okay, so I'm going to throw a party um, and I'm going to invite friends over and we're going to, you know, a, a, watch movies and eat popcorn. But I know my friends are going to make a mess. They're going to spill popcorn all over my floor. Um, but I also know that I have a brand new Roomba vacuum that's going to sweep up all the popcorn and I get a chance to use my great new robot vacuum. Right. So the idea is um, the purpose of the party is not so that my friends make a mess. I know they're going to, but the perp that's not the reason I'm throwing the party, right? But even though I know it happens, I'm going to let it happen because I've got an awesome solution to that problem that I know is going to come up. So the in, if you apply the analogy to the uh, topic of the, the Odyssey, Right. So the idea is God is going to create the world and in his creation, he's going to show off his goodness, his power, his wisdom, his design, his love, his grace. But he knows man is going to sin, but he's got an awesome solution to that, which is the cross and redemption and his mercy and uh, the uh, eternal salvation of his people and that sort of thing. So. I guess the, um, that's the point I'm making is that the absolute intention isn't to make the mess. Like that is not the point. Uh, it's not. It's not an, an absolute desire. I just have to have a mess. So let's do. Let's you know. Let me figure out a way I can make a mess. No, no. That that's not the point of the party. But there's a solution to it. So. Um, do you are you comfortable with that analogy? Is is that not fitting under your model? Because I mean, I guess that's um, yeah. So I'm curious in your thoughts. Thanks. I would say, in terms of 
the first part of what you said, the I'm I don't feel the necessity of going to a question of greater good. I, it's sufficient for me to say that God's actions are all entirely good. And there's not a, I don't feel the need to defend God's justice or his actions on a greater good uh, justification. I do understand that, that that's an argument that's made, but I, I don't feel like it's a necessary argument to defend God. However, I, I also don't have a strong objection to it that I like, uh, I haven't come to the point where I just said, well, I'm not, I'm so against it that I'm against using it as a way of an, analyzing the situation. The, uh, I would, I would be con a little bit concerned about it from the standpoint uh, of if it applies a whole other framework on top that, so, that prevents God from doing what God wants to do the way God wants to do it. But the, you know, setting all that aside and turning to the question you raised, my, my only, my only concern about the, about that particular analogy is that it does seem to be that there's certain aspects of the party scenario, which while not really the intent of the party, uh, the party host, in this case, the party host, there's certain aspects of the party that the party host doesn't really intend. He anticipates this happening, but he didn't really intend it to happen. He just has a nice uh, uh, way of handling the situation against that contingency. So he has a contingency plan. If it gets messy, I have a great way to clean it up. And actually my way of cleaning it up is so good that it's better, I'm better off letting the mess happen and then cooling it up with this cool robot. And that result would be better than what it would take to tell everybody repeatedly throughout the evening, stop throwing popcorn at each other. Just let them throw the popcorn and I'll clean it up afterwards with the robot. Uh, so what I don't like about that analogy is it does paint God in some, in quite a powerless light as though he isn't in control of all the aspects of the party. And I mean, that, that's kind of where I'm uncomfortable as far as using that as an analogy of God. If you're just using it as an analogy of the fact that there can be different ways in which intent can be created or the way, different, way, different uh, senses of intent, I'm okay with that for that purpose. And if you're just giving it as an explanation of uh, the, the kind of contingent intent, so he, he intends contingent on his party guests uh, making a mess that he's going to use this robot, uh, but he's not intending that they do make a mess. In fact, he'd kind of prefer if they don't make a mess, but if they do, he has this great backup plan. I, I do, I see the difference between those kinds of intents and I'm quite willing to acknowledge it and, and recognize that, that difference. Does that make sense? Or am I talking it myself? Does. No, it, it does. And I think that starts to tap into the response to bullet bill. Cause you know, I, I think, um, Guillaume Bion could use that robot vacuum analogy and say, well, that's part of the greater good or the morally sufficient reasons for which God um, permits evil. So I think, I think we could have agreed on it, but I think your hesitation to um, sign off on it, so to speak, is 
starting to head in the direction where I think there is still going to be remaining differences between Calvinism and Molinism, and, and in my view, making the, the there's while everyone has to answer the problem of evil on their own systems, that the the Calvinist has a greater burden, and part of it you started to touch on. So the I think the first point would be you know, how is it that sin is possible in the first place? So even in the case of, um, you know, so in the in the case of Bullet Bill, Bullet Bill has the libertarian freedom to um, kill the person or not kill the person. How is it even possible that um, that could happen if there's no libertarian free will. So if it, if there's libertarian free will, then Bullet Bill is the it, you know has sourcehood and um, I guess what Robert Kane would define as ultimate responsibility. Um, and, and in essence, he starts that causal chain that leads to that death. So um, at least the the sufficient causal chain or or e efficient causality, I suppose, would be another way to say it that leads to that death. Um, but if there is no libertarian freedom, then there's a unique problem for Calvinism because um, it is. It seems to be that God is the ultimate, res ultimately responsible or the ultimate source of those events. He starts the sufficient causal chain that leads to the death, and then. Um, there is a greater burden on the Calvinist side to, to explain the evil because they have God playing a larger role in the production of evil than the Molinist does. So certainly the, in terms of the, there, there is a difference between the, the, and the causal analysis under a deterministic approach or an indeterministic approach. There is a different causal analysis. That's, I think we can stipulate that. For Guillaume Bignon's example, it's just stipulated that Bullet Bill does have libertarian freedom. And obviously that means it doesn't fit within a Calvinist uh, model because Calvinism doesn't allow for a uh, bullet that has libertarian freedom. But the, the point is that even if we assume that libertarian freedom is a real thing and that created things can have it, if we further assume that this bullet has it, that the moral intuition is if the guy shooting the gun, it doesn't have to be God in the example, but it kind of only works with God because of the need for middle knowledge to make the, uh, you know, to kind of prove, to establish the point. But the idea is that if, if the person knows that if he fires this gun, launching Bullet Bill, that Bullet Bill will freely, but nevertheless he will, choose to hit the person and kill the person. And, the, and nevertheless he pulls the gun, pulls the bullet, uh, pulls the trigger, knowing that that will happen, that we would infer from that an intent to make it happen. And we wouldn't morally, we wouldn't automatically morally excuse the person who's pulled the trigger in that case. Now, if it were actually God pulling the trigger, we might still say that God must have had some good reason for killing this person. And if we were going to apply it back to this Jeremiah situation, in that case, we'd say, well, God had a reason to punish Israel or God had a reason to punish Babylon. 
So the fact that God's pulling the bullet, 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 and it's, you know, shooting Israel or shooting Babylon or shooting the Medes, whoever God's shooting, God has a reason, a morally sufficient reason for doing what he does. And he's justified in what he does. But if it, if it weren't God, and if it were instead just somebody who had the, uh, had access to God's middle knowledge so that he knew that if he fires this gun, Bullet Bill will, in fact, uh, kill the person, then our, our moral intuition, Guillaume says, and I kind of agree with, I think I do agree with, with Guillaume, uh, that our moral intuition is we would still blame the person who fired the gun in that situation. Yeah, I agree as well. See, that's the thing. So the having libertarian freedom is not a get out of jail free card, nor is middle knowledge, and nor is the combination of the two of them. They're not in and of itself. Okay, so let's let's take for libertarian freedom. So we talked about Adam. So let's say God creates Adam directly into hell and just burns him for eternity without Adam ever having sinned. And God gives him libertarian free will while he's in hell. Okay, that doesn't, you know, that that, that still seems um, inappropriate and um, something that the God revealed in Scripture just wouldn't do. So um, the just having libertarian freedom does not seem to get him off the hook. And if God has middle knowledge of what Adam's going to do while he's in hell, you know, that still doesn't explain. So just have, just, I agree with you that just, I agree with Guillaume and you that just introducing libertarian freedom into the mix and just introducing middle knowledge into the mix is not enough of a theodicy. It's a question of how how God uses it. And the same is true of his just his straight up omnipotence. So God's omnipotence, you can come up with a scenario where God misuses his omnipotence or something like that. It's, you know, so whether it's his omniscience or middle knowledge or his omnipotence, it's a question of God's character in terms of, well, how does he use those things? Right. That's the issue. So does that does that distinction at least uh, start to make sense? Well, perhaps so. I, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, you're kind of, you, the answer you've just given me, I think Dr. Bignon would take as admitting the point he was trying to make by the analogy that he was making. Yes. So the, now the question is, do I fall into the trap that he's setting? So bullet bill is a trap. So the, the the springing of the trap is, okay, well, God has morally sufficient reasons. God doesn't um, act this way. And so now, well, your your answer to the problem of evil is the exact same as ours, right? And, and that's what I'm saying. Like on the on the robot vacuum itself, and I understand you have some hesitant reservations, but on the robot vacuum in general, I think um, Keon could, if he wanted to, he could agree with it. I think you could if you, you, I know you have some reservations. So now the question is, how does God use his middle knowledge? How does God um, handle uh, beings with libertarian freedom? So I've already articulated one unique aspect that is, that I think is one unique aspect, which is the, the entire possibility of sin in the first place. But I think there's 
several more that could be brought out. And, you know, the, the idea of God testing people, right? So God could test Bullet Bill to see whether Bullet Bill, when placed in those circumstances, would freely refrain from killing or kill, right? And that seems to be a, I mean, I, I know Calvinists use the language of testing, but in, in a libertarian sense, it seems to have a, a, a more uh, full meaning, um, it, at least in my opinion, it has a, has a bit more of a full meaning when uh, there's libertarian freedom involved in the test. So I think that's another aspect where God could use his, uh, God could have middle knowledge. So let me put it this way. Um, it, actually, so, you know, the, the best way to explain this is um, which comes first in the logical order, God's intention for the person to sin or God's intention to test the person and then knowing that the person will fail the test, he's going to allow the sin. Those two things are different. So if God absolutely decides, I'm going to have this person sin, right? And, and, and then he just goes up and searches his middle knowledge and tries to find a way to do it. That sounds more like Bullet Bill's case where, hey, I'm going to kill that guy. And let's see, oh, Bullet Bill will do it. Well, and, and then if Bullet Bill won't do it, oh, I'm going to use Bullet Steve or Bullet John. You know, he's, he searches around until he finds a way to kill this guy, right? So that's... That's a different animal rather than, hey, I want to see if in this circumstance, Bullet Bill will be obey my commands or not. And, okay, he is going to disobey my commands. All right, but I can bring greater good out of it, so I'm going to let it happen. Those are two different things in a different order. One is more of a consequentialist sort of, you know, um, let evil you know, uh, I guess basically the ends justify the means sort of a, a approach. And so I, th I think there is still a unique burden on Calvinism with respect to two things so far, which is, you know, one, how is, how is the evil even possible? The second is um, there isn't this testing aspect and rather um, it seems that the desire to have the sin happen um, just, you know, it kind of supersedes uh, or is more absolute. So I think I'm, I'm probably missing some some step of the argument that you're presenting because it's not quite clicking for me yet. But so let me let me divide a couple things. First sure. of all, in the original in the original example, we're talking about a person. In the original example, it's a person with a negative a negative intent trying to kill the target and okay. bullet bill is an instrument to that end but we're saying that the libertarian freedom of bullet bill does not remove the moral responsibility from the person who pulls the trigger and, and i agree with that and so what we're saying if that if that moral if that intuition is correct then the fact that human beings have libertarian freedom doesn't relieve god of moral responsibility for the actions of those people, even as long as we can say that God in some way intends the outcome that, that occurs. 
And now I think you're saying, I well, there's a couple of layers of what you said, but it seems like part of what you're saying is God doesn't necessarily intend. Well, no, I think you eventually settle in the case, in the illustration that you provided. There's a couple of intermediate steps, but ultimately God does decide that he's endorsing this path forward. Then, uh, and, and by saying endorsing the path forward, I think you said he's going to let it happen. He's going to permit it to happen. You could say he's going to arrange the the circumstances that it, that will result that not in a causal way, but nevertheless will result in the this indeterminately happening, the outcome uh, still coming. So if that outcome is an evil thing, God is still intending. Among other things, he's certainly intending that that evil outcome occur. So let's say that the action, we're, we're not saying that God is sinful, but we are saying that the action is a sin, that this libertarian creature is going to do something that for the libertarian creature, it is a sin. Uh, but so, we're saying God shouldn't be held morally responsible so I disagree. I, I disagree. I disagree be, because of the robot vacuum, right? The you wouldn't say that the purpose of the party is to to have a mess, right? That's not the that's not the purpose. That's not the intention of the party. Okay. So so neither is it the intention. Okay. So in the bullet bill analogy, it is the intention of the the shooter to kill. So. Okay. I agree with you that that's inappropriate and God wouldn't do that. Okay, so now I'm modifying the bullet bill analogy saying, no, let's let's set it up so that it is not the intention to um, kill the, the victim. Rather, the intention is to test bullet bill to see whether he's going to obey or not. So you, I understand we're, we can divide the the, perp, the intent of God into that the intent of God is to accomplish some morally appropriate thing. God has a morally appropriate intent in what he is doing. But the question, the but even with that extra stage of of God having a desire to test the person right. in the end, when God, uh, what God chooses to permit a world in which the result of a sinful act occurring occurs by his permission. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. okay. And Fair I'd enough. say by his permission, I mean, obviously that means he's not doing anything. He's in it's his inaction or whatever you want to say. I'm not saying that he's causing it to happen because that's obviously the opposite of indeterminism. But nevertheless, he's endorsed this outcome. So there is a libertarian slice, but the outcome yeah. is still being endorsed by God. Right, right. Okay. But you're saying that it is important that there's the that that it's not simply that God wants the outcome, the sinful event to occur, but the reason why as being a test of the person. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Yeah, so I, I think I I, th I think that is an important aspect in 
explaining, you know, God's righteousness, I guess, and with respect to these actions, I, th I think probably the greater good maybe is a more important aspect, but I think having the test there is important as well. Um, and so I, and I actually say that the test though leads to a third point, which is this development of a relationship and this idea of uh, free uh, love and that sort of thing. So the, the idea that, you know, love isn't something that you've determined into somebody, but the idea is that out of all the evil and suffering in the world is the salvation of God's people. And God has a, a special relationship with them. And so that there's a, if there's libertarian freedom, then this was a, a relationship that was freely done, not something that was uh, determined to be done, but it was freely done in that sense, uh, in a libertarian sense. And so the third point I would make, so the first point was the possibility of sin in the first place. The second point is the testing aspect. But the third point would be the greater good that God brings out, uh, out of everything, the, the morally sufficient reason for a Molinist can involve a libertarianly freely chosen relationship um, with God. And that could be part of the greater good so that if people pass the test, they develop into a deeper and deeper relationship with their Lord and um, ultimately uh, join with him forever in, in eternity. And that is something where if libertarian free will doesn't exist, then it can't be part of the greater good. It can't be part of the morally sufficient reasons to have this libertarianly freely chosen relationship. So I think in three ways, there's still a stronger problem of evil to overcome on Calvinism slash determinism than there is on libertarianism slash Molinism. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that Bullet Bill, so if if the point of Bullet Bill was to simply say, hey, just the introduction of libertarian free will and just the introduction of Molinism doesn't get God off the hook, I agree. Bullet Bill succeeds. But if the point of Bullet Bill is to say every problem of evil is equal between Molinist and Calvinist, then no, Bill Bill doesn't prove that. So in, in terms of the points you just raised, I think we could probably do, and maybe we should at some point, do a separate episode on this test, because I, do, I think the impact of the testing uh, motivation is, I think that it's a test is, makes more sense and is a fuller, uh, a, a more fully justified description on Calvinism than it is on an indeterministic uh, worldview. But I think that would take us a whole another hour or two hours just to discuss that one point. So I just throw out that I, I just kind of put a pin in it that I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. sold on that point. Uh, okay. On the next part, the... Uh, the question of whether our relationship with God is a result of us repeatedly passing tests, I don't know if you mean for it to sound like this, but for me it sounds like a lot like works righteousness as a way that we have a good relationship with God. 
Interesting. Okay. So yeah, that that's good. Good point. So let me, uh, get, let me, uh, please give me a chance to clarify that. That, Absolutely. that is important. Of course, yeah. 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 So, you know, obviously I believe in justification by faith alone and that, you know, God doesn't have to justify the sinner. He chooses to freely out of his love and out of his mercy. Um, it is true that after we're justified, so whether it's, whether regeneration happens before faith or after faith, either way, regeneration happens and we're filled with the spirit and he enables us to do good works um, after we've come to saving faith. And that's in the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace only, but we are, we are able to do good works. And in doing them, we can develop a closer walk with God and be changed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And, um, but it's not complete in this lifetime. It only completes at glorification, you know, um, by God's unilateral act to just, to just change us to where we can only do good. But in the meantime, you know, as we obey, we are uh, using um, scriptural language. We, we, we receive rewards, right? Uh, and I think it's even crowns of righteousness and things like that. Now, they're only by God's grace. I get that, and I'm, I'm not con I'm not contending that point. But so you know, what those rewards will look like in heaven, I don't know. But there are rewards in heaven for good works that are performed out of God's grace. So that's all uh, I meant to say in terms of you know passing the test and that sort of thing. So if 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 it sounded like you know that we're earning our way to heaven, I apologize for that. That was that that was terrible on my part. Um, but it is scriptural language, right? Like God literally tests us to see whether we'll obey or not, right? And that's uh, exactly what the Bible says. So I don't have any objection to using biblical language. And mostly I was, I think mostly I brought that up because I anticipate some of my Calvinist viewers having an immediate reaction to what you said uh, along those lines. And I wanted, I definitely wanted you to have the opportunity to explain what you meant. So I think that it's important for you to explain it. And I, you know, I hope people don't just assume that my first comment is my final conclusion on these. But that said, you acknowledge that this, that good works that Christians do in this life are not done without God's grace. So I think if the, if God's grace, I don't think it takes away from our relationship with God, if our, if indeed the decisive factor in our good works is God's grace and not our own. In other words, if the source, source food of our, of our good actions is not uniquely in us, but it is also in, in God, such that God is in a special way, not in just his general providence way, but in a special way, uh, given credit for the good works that we do. Not that we don't get any credit, but that he gets special credit for that. So, okay, so let's say God comes to you in a dream and says, you know, I'm giving you certain fan a one-time offer, right? So you can determine this woman to love you or not. It's up to you, you know, <laughs> right? Well, 
we'll come to the love one. That's, that's the next one. The love, the loving relationship I, I viewed as the third point. But we'll come to that in a second. Okay. Yeah. Sure. If Go that's ahead. okay. Then, yeah. Okay. No, no, let me listen. Let me listen. Did Go you ahead. have other things on the grace? On the grace, uh, whether or not we should get credit for, it, whether it's okay for God to get full credit for all the good works we do, even though we also get credit for it. Yeah. Um, hang on. So. I guess I, what do you mean by credit then? Because, um, so it's not like you, so you're assuming that it's not like a pie chart where it's, you know, some percentage, this, some percentage that you were saying. So there's you, more, there's more than a hundred percent credit, so to speak. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm saying that the libertarian for that part of this discussion, I'm, I'm trying to divide yeah. up the discussion. So there's the part of it that is, yeah. uh, as we said, there's the testing thing, which I said, put a pin in that because I think that part, we take a long time to have a discussion about the second part is well what about this the the relationship that's built through the good deeds that we do but for the, those good deeds that we do i think compatibilism has an adequate explanation of that because in other words you don't need libertarian free will in order to explain these good deeds because in fact these are not just brought about by the free agency of people god has a special uh, a special influence over these. These are not just human beings acting unaided, like a like the Pelagian model of freedom, where human beings just do good things uh, because those are human beings and they can't. Uh, you know, so, yeah. So Pelagianism comes up later in the video. We and we, maybe we do a separate one. Yeah, yeah, probably on on, on that question if we if we. Uh, I didn't know that. I, I, yeah, I wasn't trying to go down that path. I'm just yeah. trying to distinguish it from your position, which is not the Pelagian position. I'm just trying to make that clear. Yours is not the Pelagian <laughs> position. <laughs> no, no, you know, um, yeah. So I'm going. I'm going to table that. I'm a, I'm a classical Armenian. Um, right. So obviously, I believe in prevenient grace and subsequent grace and in in those sorts of things, and also um, that in regeneration our nature has changed and that the holy spirit is actually working in us and with us and through us um in all the good works that we do so that much is extremely clear to me in scripture and um yeah so okay so hopefully so we can move so past that specific the, the topic of pelagianism itself maybe we can table it for another episode right if you but, want to. so what i'm saying is more the uh unless libertarian freedom is just nece necessary in order to have good deeds which again might be a, a topic for another question uh issue the idea that we have to separate god out from our good deeds with a wall of libertarian freedom so there's uh, one of the classic reasons for having libertarian freedom in theodicy is to wall god off from the evil because there's god and then there's the wall of libertarian freedom then there's the evil so god's separated from the evil by this libertarian free but we don't need him to be separated from our good deeds uh and and in fact he has more influence on our good deeds than even on calvinism he has more influence on them than on, on our evil deeds so yeah yeah um i see what you're saying but i do want to press that a little bit because again again to can we uh, can i bring up the relationship point at this at this point or, or is uh maybe, maybe it just smoothly transitions into, into that but i think that's where we're going it's the third part but what about the real relationship yeah so okay um so so look you know i understand that especially 
intertrinitarian love or, or whatever the case might be is necessary. So the father loves the son, the son loves the father, and they love the Holy Spirit. And that's been going on for eternity. And it's outside of God's nature to not love. It's outside of the father's nature to not love the son and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's a sense in which um, love can be had in a necessarily, right? And that's, that's okay. But I still think that doesn't diminish the, the fact that in other circumstances are different. And one of them seems to be romantic relationships. So, you know, I love my wife and if God had come to me and said, Dan, one time offer, you know, so when I first met my wife, right, if he'd come and said, um, you know, one time offer, you know, if you want me to, I'll, I'll just determine her to love you, you know, and spend the rest of her life with you. You know, if I did that, uh, that takes away a lot of the meaning to me uh, the relationship that we have where we, in my opinion, libertarianly chose each other. Now, you may not have the same intuition, but I have that intuition. And so what I'm saying is from a theodicy standpoint, whatever the greater good is, whatever the morally sufficient reason is, you, I don't think Calvinists can have libertarianly freely entered into relationships as part of the greater good, whereas Molinists can have that as part of the greater good or part of the morally sufficient reasons as to why God allows evil. So there's a unique aspect of the problem of evil that Calvinism has to answer that that Molinists don't. I would almost I would almost view just to try to adopt your your argument here as not so much that we have a different thing to answer for in this case, but that you have an uh, a different resolution of the greater good, because in your case, the greater good involves these libertarian free relationships, but Calvinists can't, by definition, can't refer to any libertarian free relationships among humans or uh, between from humans to God, because you know, creaturely libertarian freedom isn't a thing in Calvinism. So we can't have, if that is indeed the justification for the other things. That's what makes it the greater good. Well, Calvinism doesn't have that answer, and therefore Calvinism would need another answer than that one. They would have, they would have to have something else other than that. And I don't, I, as far as that goes, you know, kind of putting a pin in, in the question of whether uh, libertarian free relationships are a good thing or are the more desirable thing, I do agree with your point that that's a different answer than Calvinists can give, but I think that in, a, in fairness to what Guillaume Bignon saying, you're, that's a species of the, the idea of a greater good. But I think what his point is, is uh, maybe addressed by your, I haven't uh, seen the whole debate in fairness. So maybe he ties this in in a point and this would knock out the keystone of his argument. But the, uh, but the idea that he's making, which is that libertarian freedom doesn't isolate God from sin, is uh, you know is, is one point. And the idea that libertarian free relationships with God by humans with God is an important part of establishing some greater good is 
if it's if that's a legitimate answer, then yes, Calvinism can't provide that. And, and there would just be a similarity that Calvinism also appeals to some uh, morally justified end or greater good or whatever it is. And you know, with all my previous caveats about greater good, but Calvinism could say there is a greater good. They'd just not be able to say that's the greater good, libertarian free freedom with uh, relationships with each other or with God. So I, I think we're on the same page, but I could be wrong. Right. So I mean, aside with all those pins we put in everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think, um, you know, I could, I could, I could put supposedly come up with a fourth point, which is the intuition about blame, you know, but, you know, I, I think we, we could table to that as well. So, you know, the, the idea of, well, what about bullet bill is, you know, in the, in the first case scenario, when you should shoot a regular bullet, you don't blame the bullet, you blame the shooter. In the second case scenario, you not just blame the shooter, but you blame bullet bill also. Um, so I think in that sense, well, if bullet bill is going to end up accountable for his and responsible for his actions and, and he, um, suffer this consequence. I, I think that is a, perhaps a fourth point. So just to s summarize, and, and we can start to wrap up, but so I, I, th I find four distinctions remaining. One, how is sin and evil possible to begin with if there's no such thing as libertarian free will and God is the, you know, ultimately responsible for everything. Two, there's no testing aspect. Three, the responsibility that Bullet Bill holds um, at least our moral intuitions about that responsibility and for um, the libertarianly freely chosen loving relationship that's part of the greater good or morally sufficient reason. So I think that in those four points, it is not true that, you know, any solution to the problem of evil is going to be shared between the Calvinist and the Molinist. I think they, I, I think that, um, frankly, that, that Calvinism faces a tougher problem with you. Now, I suspect you're going to say, I'm up for the challenge. <laughs> or you may even say, what problem? <laughs> but but, but uh, um, I, think, I think the problem of evil is, frankly, a, a bigger challenge for Calvinists than it is for Molinists. Yeah, I, I don't think so. But are you okay with that, you know, not not resolving that all in the same episode. So, uh, okay. and I mean, if unless you, if you're certain parts you want to dig into, and we're kind of we're at one hour or so into the discussion now without any of the pins we just brought up, but I think some of those would be excellent for another time. Maybe sure. maybe next time we talk about uh, testing in Molinism versus testing in Calvinism. Like, what are the? I mean, if you want to, and it, we could talk about that and. Uh, we can even discuss offline what, what would be the next episodes, but we can talk about some of these uh, aspects. Maybe we could even talk about at some point an exegetical discussion of Jeremiah 51 or some of these other passages where uh, where there's something bullet bill-esque in scripture. <laughs> One of those situations. And I think if I heard you right, and maybe let me just summarize the points that you raised. You raised the point that if you don't have libertarian freedom, then the testing, you, you lose the, the ability, the, the uh, testing aspect. That was number one. Number two, if you lose libertarian freedom, you don't have 
the development of uh, a relationship through good deeds uh, that, that is a part of our relationship with God. If you don't have the return freedom, you don't have that. And then there was another one, which is in general, you don't have a libertarian free relationship kind of closely united with that point. Unless you have that uh, libertarian freedom, you don't have a libertarian free relationship with God. And then fourth is you also don't have a source of blaming the people who do evil. You can't blame Billet Bull, ugh, Bullet Bill. You couldn't blame him except for having him having libertarian free will. So, and you lose that on Calvinism. So the, uh, the, the evils that occur would have no, uh, no one to punish. The uh, relationships would be not genuine libertarian relationships. The, uh, the good deeds that are done would just be, they wouldn't be uh, legitimately morally assigned to the people who are doing those good deeds and uh, I, and that they would have there would be no real test purpose behind god allowing evil in the first place so on that on those points calvinism's answers to the problem of evil would have to be although they can apply to this general category of some greater good they're there's some major differences in how they'd have to get there. And that to say that we're, you know, we need to uh, hug on this point is maybe too optimistic or oversimplifying things. Is that, is that fair, a fair characterization? Or? It's, a, it's a really good summary. I mean, I personally, I, I would personally just drop the point on, on works and just and stick to the relationship aspect. Um, um, but the rest of them were fine. The, the only thing is maybe you stated them too sharply than me. I would just say that, hey, look, there's some questions and concerns that people would have that you have to address. And now I'm not saying you can't answer them. You can't assuage those concerns. You can't help people with this problem of evil uh, from a evangelical standpoint or from a pastoral standpoint or whatever the case might be. I'm not saying you, you're not up to the challenge, but I am saying that, You've got a bigger, you've got other challenges, different challenges, some some specialized challenges there. And, and I think you summarized them nicely. There was like that character, Ricky Ricardo, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so, there's quite, yeah. There's so we have some explaining question. to do. But I think, I mean, I obviously to your point, yes, of course, Calvinists do think we have answers to these questions. And maybe we can get into some of those in, in other episodes. Uh, do you have more on the Guillaume Bignon discussion that you'd like to get into now, or should we just wrap it up here? So, we, I mean, in a, in a, we can wrap it here um, in a separate discussion. We can get into the, there is a, an interesting discussion on Pelagianism. Um, just a caveat on it, just, I, man, I really, really, really like Kirk McGregor's uh, presentation, except one point when he gets into original sin, and then I really, really, really cringe. But, um, you know, I, other than that, I thought he did an outstanding job. I thought uh, Guillaume Beyond did an outstanding job. Whether he's a Huguenot or not, doesn't matter. He, he did a great job. And uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe we can address uh, some of those further points on Pelagianism, I guess, in a, in a future episode.
Um, but uh, for this topic, I think that's, I think you summed it up very, very well. So I think we can leave it at that. Thanks very much. I, I want to give a quick opportunity to anyone who's watching through YouTube. We should be seeing any YouTube comments that are coming through. And I do appreciate we are able to see how many people are watching. So if any of you have questions, comments, feel free to drop them live. Or if you would like, drop them afterwards. Make sure you subscribe, of course, for YouTube. Or if you're watching this through Facebook or Twitter, I don't know whether there's a subscription option in there. But uh, anyway, I appreciate everyone who's watching live, uh, whether or not you leave comments. Um, and uh, that I don't have additional summary points at this point, so I guess I'll leave it to you, Dan, to close things out. Oh no, it was great, great discussion. I appreciate it, and uh, God be with you. And also with you.